Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 129. We're coming at you on Sunday, June 6th, 2021, at about 5 p.m. Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Todd, oh, uh, what, what have you watched more of so far? College Baseball World Series or NBA playoffs? Uh, <laughs> probably a slightly more NBA playoffs. It's probably like 10 minutes to 9 minutes. Oh, okay, okay. I think I've watched more college baseball at this point. Zach, have you watched any of it either? Um, I've watched more women's softball than college baseball. Ah. Just because I saw some of the highlights on uh, ESPN. And uh, I am so out of the loop. I don't even know who won the Clippers-Mavericks game today. I don't even know. Clippers. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But it was it was thrilling seeing LeBron eliminated. That that I don't really care who wins the title now. All all that uh, we really wanted on the same night that the Blazers were eliminated, it was I guess a nice silver lining to see the Lakers humiliated. Yeah, I, I'm repping my 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 Blazers here with my Portland shirt. Yeah. All of a sudden, got sunny. So there we go. All right, but yeah, uh, my Blazer shirt. It just happens to be a Greg Oden shirt. So. Uh, I'm uh, repping those. Oh, that, that's, uh, not, that's not a bad omen. Well, well, I mean, they're, they're not playing anymore. So I, I, I uh, wore the shirt of, wore the shirt of the one. I mean, they're not playing and they fire their coach. So it's, uh, it's kind of bad all around. They fired their coach. Really? You, wow. Oh. You are really out of the loop. Yeah. I, they fired Terry wild, Stotts though. the day after the day after they some, got eliminated. They fired him. some rumors about that. I did not see that. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. And Damian Lillard came out and said he wanted Jason Kidd and, uh, Jason Kidd came out today and said, because Damian Lillard said that he wants nothing to do with the job. Okay. This is semi-related, but can we just talk about how unbearable college basketball is going to be next year with the farewell tour to coach K? I mean, I, I'm already <laughs> sick of it. I can, I, I'm done. I'm over it. Like, just I don't know. Take a shot for whatever, or, or like sh- a shot to the head, maybe every time that they, you know, give him a key to the city or whatever bullshit. And like it, it's going to be insufferable, right, Todd? Yeah, but I almost feel like he's probably not going to do the whole season. He's probably going to get sick of it too, and he's going to leave after like five games. Yeah, like if they start six and four or something, just give up. Yeah. I mean, he just came off a season where he missed the tournament. I mean that that doesn't happen at Duke, so yeah. Yeah, that that will be that will be interesting. I think I'm more of a fan of Coach K than you guys, but at the same time, in general, the farewell tours have gotten way over the top and ridiculous. So I can't even imagine when you have someone that actually has earned it, what what that's going to look like. And notice that they're only for pieces of shit like uh, J- Jeter. You know, I mean, they're never for like legitimately good players. <laughs> Drew Brees never did one. Jones had a pretty awesome farewell tour. Okay. But- Maybe he's I don't know. Okay, but okay, so John Shire is like my age, right? 
Is he going to be Duke's coach for like the next 60 years or something? Obviously not. I think the, ob- the obvious play here is that he'll coach two seasons. When they get bounced from the Sweet 16 each year, then they're going to hire Brad Stevens. I think that's the, that's the, long, the, the long con. He's, he's going to go from being president of basketball ops for the Boston Celtics <laughs> to uh, head coach of Duke. Yeah. Oh, he's not going to stay at Boston. That's that's insane. Yeah. He's not a GM. <clears throat> well, they. I mean, I was surprised they didn't even look at like Woj or some of the other. I don't know. I mean, they've got former Duke players that are coaches, but Shire. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently it'll be interesting to see for sure. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, for listening to our podcast you can find us all over the internet almostsideways.com has all the info but we are on apple podcasts we're on stitcher we're on pandora we're on spotify we're on youtube uh where you can check out uh adam there and uh and some of the stuff he's doing there as he runs that channel some snippets of our podcast episodes and things like that all right that's out of the way zach what are you drinking um i'm having some of my final uh Storm Chaser out of Free State Brewery and fabulous LFK. And it's pretty fantastic. Very hoppy. More hoppy than even last week. Very nice. Very nice. Todd? I'm drinking the Snowcap Winter Ale from <laughs> Pyramid Brewery. Very nice. It's not winter. And it's not winter. Yeah, it's and it true. may have been gifted to you. So, <laughs> Inside information. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, it is, uh, it, it is, uh, I'm heading into my last week of school. Uh, Zach, you've been out of school for a week now. Um, I start summer school tomorrow. Oh, man. So we're deep diving a movie about school. Um, and so I have a beer here from Zach's second favorite brewery. That is uh, Sierra Nevada. Oh, it is, yes. it is their summer break hazy IPA. Solid choice. I thought it was good. I thought it was appropriate. I, I think Todd's poster behind his head is also appropriate. Um, Alice Cooper, yeah. school's out for summer. Mm-hmm. I like very it. Much, very much, very much appropriate. All right. Well, let's get into what we have been watching. And let's start with our Criterion review of the week. And for that, we go to Zach. All right, so I was so infuriated last week when Terry inexplicably gave thumbs down to what I think is one of the great movies of the early 2000s by a great director whose name is also Terry. I mean, we could have talked about that for a while, too. You have the same name. There's a similarity there. Anyway, I thought uh, since we were also talking about music uh, films this week, I would check out Terry Zweigoff's first feature documentary, which is a film called Louie Bluey from 1985. and. It is a very much a a companion piece to Crumb, which I think is one of the five best documentaries ever made. It is a look at the life and experiences of a uh, musician named Howard Armstrong, whose nickname is Louie Bluey. Um, And he is a, I mean, he's exactly the type of musician that R. Crumb would listen to and um, uh, Seymour in Ghost World would also listen to. He's a black string guitar uh, banjo player. He plays the mandolin and the bass as well. And uh, he was uh, 
basically reading up about the movie, he was sort of long lost and forgotten until the 1970s. Um, he was uh, living in Chicago and then he kind of, when his music sort of came back in style, he rejoined a bunch of his cronies and they started performing again. And uh, Louis Bluey is basically Terry Zweigoff uh, just kind of hanging out with him. Um, he, they uh, take a trip to um, a garage sale they go to a restaurant, they tour a uh, uh, street in Chicago. Um, it's just like, it, it's actually only 65 minutes long, but it's like 65 minutes with like the craziest, most eccentric, like Renaissance, like great uncle type figure you could find. And the guy's awesome. I mean, he has some incredible stories. He's incredibly like, you know, you, you don't think, you think kind of world weary guy who's kind of like, you know, eight, but he's like super intelligent. He's also like <laughs> a great artist too. I mean, that's, you can see some of the overlap because he has these kind of lurid and lewd, um, almost comic strips like our crumb comic strips. He has an entire book of pornography, the ABCs of pornography that he illustrated. And then he gives some of his takes on modern art. Like he goes to downtown Chicago and just lambasts some of the modern art. It's, it's hilarious. And uh, he talks about growing up in rural Tennessee. He was one of uh, like 11 kids. And they formed this, uh, you know, uh, music was basically their way out in much the same way that art was the same way out for Robert Crumb. And uh, it's just a fascinating movie. Now, what's cool about the Criterion edition is that um, Louis Blue is a mostly forgotten film until Cri Criterion came out with it. And they actually got Terry Zweigoff, who's a pretty notorious recluse, to do a commentary on it. So I actually watched, like I said, it's only a 60-minute film. His commentary is a great commentary. The guy has a lot of um, charisma and passion, and he remembers a lot of details about the filming of the project. Uh, unfortunately, Louis Bluey died about maybe 15 years ago. He was 75 during the making of this movie, but the guy has more spontaneity and energy and, and, and uh, enthusiasm than a lot of people half his age. So again, really just a fun journey with this quirky, eccentric Renaissance man of a musician and poet and artist. I give it three and a half stars, and uh, Terry Zweigoff is a genius, and Terry Plucknett should check out more of his work. Yeah, maybe I should. Maybe I should. He also made the movie because he got a $3,000 loan from his brother. He talks about that in the commentary, too. <laughs> Todd, would you loan Terry, or would, would you loan each other money to make movies? Ooh. Do you loan each other money? That's an interesting topic. Uh, Vegas, maybe. Yeah. Vegas, yeah. yes. I, I, did, I did receive a loan in Vegas. Actually, it was more of a gift because it never came back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that the, the infamous six-way parlay? That, that, that was a three-way parlay, and I got every single part of it wrong. Yes, that, nice. that was, yes. Yeah, that was the end of the 100 what, $100? Because you had so. two tournaments, right? So. <laughs> Something like that. It was, it, it, all things were bad. I think I won one bet the whole time. All right. All right, so there's our criterion review. Moving on now to, I'll go next with our, our Oscar anniversary review. And we are backing up 20 years. And 20 years ago, this was nominated for Best Foreign Film uh, out of the nation of Argentina. And this movie is called Son of the Bride, uh, and which is a movie I've never heard of. And it was really fascinating story about how I had to watch this. Um, so it wasn't streaming anywhere to rent or to stream for free. So I, I try to find the disc somewhere, not at the library. I, I can't find it anywhere. I end up buying 
a a used old library copy from uh from like Colorado uh for six dollars on Amazon because I was like I want to watch this movie because now I'm intrigued of, of what I'm missing out and not, not being able to watch it so I have a copy of it now and and it's a fairly decent movie so this movie was written and directed by Juan Jose Campanella Campanella who uh, was the Oscar-winning writer-director of Secret in Their Eyes, which came out uh, a few years after this in 2009, I believe. Um, and uh, it stars uh, Ricardo Darren, who was a star of a Secret, The Secret in Their Eyes as well. And he is a uh, kind of a 40-year-old restaurant owner and really, really busy, recently divorced, uh, has a has a kid that he's juggling to has a girlfriend he's juggling his life is kind of chaotic uh, his he's running the old family business his mom and dad opened this restaurant and he inherited it and uh, and he has some some stuff happen in his life he has some health issues that make him reevaluate some things at the same time his mom is uh, slowly fading away from Alzheimer's and is in a home and uh, his dad goes and visits her every day. He doesn't visit her that often, but his dad comes and says he wants to give her a gift and use all of his retirement money uh, to give her the, a gift. And that gift is uh, he wants to give her the big church wedding she never got uh, when they originally got together. And so uh, he decides he's going to try and do this for her. And uh, the main character, uh, his name is Raphael. He is going to help his dad pull this off. And that's kind of what's going to refocus his life and, and help him reevaluate where he should be. Um, it is a fun movie. Uh, I'm going to give it three stars. It's kind of all over the place in tone. You don't know if this is if, if it's a drama. At times, it feels like a slapstick comedy. Um, at times, it's, it's just kind of a feel good, uh, nostalgic movie. So it's kind of bouncing all over the place. Uh, you're engaged the whole time, though. It's entertaining. It could have used a little bit more guidance in, in where, what it was going for in the tone. Uh, but it, it is a lot of fun. A, a great standout in this is uh, Eduardo Blanco, who plays uh, Juan Carlos, a long lost childhood friend that finds him uh, a little later on in life and uh, is, uh, is an actor and often pops up. Uh, pretending to be somebody else like um, when he has his health issues he pops up in the hospital uh, pretending to be a doctor and then he po he he pops up uh, the first time he pops up he pops up as like a um, a uh, restaurant critic and trying to claim he's trying to shut down the restaurant and it's it's he's he's amazing he's really good in this uh, but yeah three star movie uh, a lot of fun and uh, yeah, definitely worth the trouble it was in trying to find a find a copy of this to watch. So uh, I, I was looking it up. Juan Jose Campanella has only directed eight films, so he, he doesn't really direct that many movies. Uh, he often works with Ricardo Darren. Uh, he has done a lot of TV and a lot of American TV, uh, even though he goes and makes these Argentinian movies that get nominated for Oscars. Like he's directed twenty one episodes of Law and Order SVU. He directed five episodes of Halt and Catch Fire. He directed four episodes of House. Um, he directed an episode of 30 Rock. Um, it, he's 
kind of bounces all over the TV spectrum, but every now and then he comes out with these great movies. And, uh, and I think this is definitely one of them. Uh, Definitely the one that got him on the map for sure. So son of the bride, if either of you ever even heard of this one. Nope. I've not. I know there was a movie in 2001 called bride of the wind. That's who I thought you were talking about at first. That was a biography of, Mahler's wife that Ebert gave a half star to. So I was like prepared to start looking up that shit. And I was like, oh no, it, it is not Spanish language and it is not a <laughs> Academy Award nominee. So never mind, moving on. Well, well, now that I have uh have a very coveted copy, apparently, I will uh I might be able be willing to share it with you guys a little bit so you guys can watch this one. All right. Now it's time, Todd. Take us into the cager. All right. So my cager comes from 1986. It's a Canadian movie directed by Charles Jarrett called The Boy in Blue, which is a true story about Ned Harlan, uh, who is a world champion Canadian scholar, which is like a rower, I guess, uh, in the late 1800s. He's sort of like a wandering soul. He's looking for guidance. He didn't really have any parental figures. He's sort of self-destructive. He has like long nights of drinking before races, and uh, he's sort of a scandalous stick man. Uh, but he he meets these businessmen. One of them is played by uh, Christopher Plummer and uh, and also some, like, degenerate gamblers who try to, like, take him in but and, like, train him. But all they're really doing is trying to create value so they can bet on him. Uh, the the movie is really kind of corny. Like, it, it's, it's like a sappy, cliche biopic, even though there are parts of the story like the degenerate gambler thing that are more sinister, but they play it cartoonishly rather than actually making it uh, seem dangerous in some way. But Cage plays it pretty much like a classic movie star would, but he doesn't really have all the charisma that you would think he does. Like he's just really likable and gullible, but he doesn't freak out or anything. It's more of a physical performance, sort of like a rock Hudson kind of movie. Uh, and he does absolutely nothing to fit into the era. Like he, he, he dresses like a surfer in the eighties and uh, like everyone else is like, sporting a mustache and like cool period clothes and he just looks like he's like dropped in from like 100 years later and he has no interest in keeping his shirt on like uh, he's like it's like a mcconaughey movie like i think the best of times and con air are the only other times i could think of that he really is just like trying to show off his physique in his movies but um yeah he, he's shirtless like almost the entire movie um it it's it's a weird choice for cage to do this movie and a weird choice for them to make him this character because this guy is like a legend in canada that he's playing and it could have been like a really cool star making vehicle for like a Canadian actor, but instead cage is in it. And it, the movie is like lost now it's got less than at that or just over a thousand votes on IMDb and it's got no rotten tomatoes reviews. It was even nominated for a couple of like Canadian Oscars back then. And uh, it's still, uh, still like basically nobody's seen it or heard of it. I never even heard of it until I realized that I hadn't seen it. Uh, you did get to know a little bit about rowing from the movie. Like he, like this guy, I guess, sort of half invented the sliding seat technique to create more leverage in, in the boat, which uh, I had no idea about. And they, they treat the rowers like, like basically like horses, like with how they, like with the odds and like how they just kind of like cast them away after they don't really have any value to them anymore. It's sort of like Seabiscuit-ish in, in that way. I had no idea that you could actually bet on rowing. Um, there's a good movie here somewhere. Uh, I just don't know if this is how you should have done it. Like, it's interesting that Cage did uh, like several movies in the '80s away from Hollywood. He, he was totally trying to do his own thing and make his name in his own way. And that, that like kind of ambition is not something you really associate with Cage now. But uh, looking back on like the movies he made in Italy and like this movie, it, it's just a little odd. But um, I'm overall the movie's okay. It's, I'm giving it two stars. 
putting it number 70 on the cager between Jiu-Jitsu and the Humanity Bureau. Yeah, the boy in blue. Very nice, very nice. I mean, when you said rowing, you know, first thing I thought of was Canada. I mean, I don't think that movie would get greenlit anywhere else. Um, the first but, thing I thought of when you said rowing was the Winklevi. That too. Yeah. What is the sliding seat technique? Well, it, it's like a, it makes like a retractable seat. So like instead of you just like rowing with your arms, like your seat is going with you. To, it creates more leverage for you to, uh, I don't know, get more momentum. Is it anything like George Clooney's sex toy and burn after reading? I mean, that's what yes. it kind of sounds like. Retractable yes. seats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of painful, actually. All right. Well, I, I think the only thing we can do from that is move on. <laughs> All right. So there's what we've been watching. And now let's move on to our featured review. I think this is the first time we've done a featured review quite like this. Uh, as we are doing an anniversary review. Uh, it's not really necessarily something that's that was worth a full deep dive, but we are definitely reviewing it. And it's something we've all seen leading into this, which is also new that we're doing a, just a retro review here. And uh, I'm really excited for this. <clears throat> we are reviewing for the 100th anniversary, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Uh, a remarkable movie made back in 1921. It's just crazy that we have featured film feature films that are now a hundred years old. Uh, so we're talking about the kid here and I'm going to start out talking about this one and uh, we'll, we'll kind of give our, a, a regular review of it and then go into maybe some significance of it. So uh, the kid is Charlie Chaplin's first uh, feature film that he starred in, wrote, directed. And uh, he plays his lovable tramp who finds a baby uh, in his uh, just around the corner from his house that's been abandoned that uh, through some random circumstances. And there's a, a note that says, please take care of this orphan child. And he decides to take that to heart and does and raises the kid for uh, for five years, treats him to to be a little bit of a con artist with him because he's. The tramp, so he's not necessarily the most honest and uh, upright citizen there is. And then, as the movie goes along, the uh, the mother uh, is trying to find his find her uh, her son again uh, after abandoning him, and eventually uh, makes something of her life. and And you kind of see the the stories kind of intertwine there. Uh, this movie is barely an hour long. In fact, I think the version I watched was actually under an hour, which I thought was interesting because it's listed as an hour eight, but it was under an hour. It was a really um, nice. It was a, okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is available kind of all over the place. It's on HBO Max. It's on, uh, what else was it on? It was on Canopy. It was on Criterion Channel. I think it's on Prime. Uh, this movie is it shows everything that's great about Charlie Chaplin and everything that's great about Charlie Chaplin films. Uh, I heard a story one time that him and Buster Keaton used to compete over who could make a film with the least amount of title cards uh, and dialogue cards. And 
uh, it shows because one of the things that I love about Charlie Chaplin's movies is you don't really need the title cards to understand what's going on. I mean, they're they're They only pop up when it is absolutely necessary because he's so good at emoting. And one of the things I think as a standout in this movie is the performance of Jackie Cooper, who plays the child. Uh, I I'd forgotten just how, amazing this kid is in this uh in this performance like there's a scene where he's he's being taken away and he's in the he's in the truck and and just that like 10 15 seconds that you have of him crying for for charlie chaplin to come get him is one of the best bits of child acting i've seen on screen like of all time and it was probably one of the first times we saw something like that on screen uh, it, it's it's a remarkable film. It it's a it's a classic for a reason. Um, it was uh, apparently the inspiration for uh, Adam Sandler's Big Daddy. However, I did check; it's not officially given any uh, any adaptation credits in in the in the film. However, it's it's undeniably uh, inspired by this. Uh, so yeah, it's a four star masterpiece for me. It's uh, it's Charlie Chaplin doing what Charlie Chaplin does, and uh, and that's that's where I stand on this one. Uh, Todd, why don't you go next? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love this movie too. I, I don't think it's Chaplin's best movie, but it is. It, it's it's a little different because it's like it's it, it's more delicate than his other stuff. Like, I mean, it 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 makes it more like somber and sincere, which is, is, is just a different kind of Chaplin experience. And I, and I really like that. And so much happens in an hour like, of this movie. Like you really can't look away cause you'll probably miss something kind of key. But what, what I also love is how much is going on in the background of all these shots. Like usually in a silent movie, especially like you'll focus on the actors, but like what's going on behind everything else is also really interesting. And like every, every shot has an idea in the, in the movie. And Chaplin, he's he's awesome. He wears his emotions like on his sleeve again like, and with his body language better than basically any actor ever. And I think he probably was a pretty good athlete. Like he contorts his body in the weirdest ways, and like his hips move like Barry Sanders. Like I bet he could have played a football player. Uh, but <laughs> the only real quibble I have with the movie is like the when they do have the subtitles, there's this like corny drawing behind it, and it makes it almost impossible to read what it actually says. But uh, and and the the end like dream sequence thing is sort of like wild at heart ish. It, it it works for some reason, but it's kind of it's kind of bizarre. But yeah, the movie it's it's like sentimental, but it's not really sappy, and it's like funny without being goofy. And uh, yeah, it, it it's a great movie. Three and a half stars for me. All right, Zach, you're you're the you're the actual film student here. Tell tell us your thoughts on the kid. Well, at one point, I was at one point. Not anymore. <laughs> you're the uh, film teacher. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know when we. I mean, like when we would talk about this film in like film 101 class, it was usually we didn't we wouldn't show the whole thing usually. But like it was worth talking about in regard to Chaplin's use of pathos, you know, as you guys have kind of already alluded to. Like this was the first time that it wasn't just a slapstick comedy the whole time. I mean, you had real dramatic undercurrents in this movie. You had the scene where Jackie Coogan is crying and Chaplin throws the thing on the police officer and runs after him. Allegedly, this movie was based on the fact that Chaplin had lost a child himself. And uh, yeah, there's re there's real drama in it. And actually, you see that drama also later in uh, particularly City Lights. I mean, City Lights is a, a hilarious movie, but also I think one of the most like uh, amazingly beautiful endings of all time. I mean, Chaplin was clearly an artist as well as a comedian. 
And uh, yeah, one of the things that sticks out to me too, kind of like what Todd is saying, there's a lot going in on in the frame in this movie. There's a lot of like decisions that are very artistic and aesthetically inspired rather than cheap. You know, you look at the comedies, those like one or two real comedies from the 1910s, the Max Senate Keystone Cops movie and the Fatty Arbuckle movies, and even some of the Max Linder movies, like they're funny, but they, they have, they're basically a one joke premise. And in this movie, which is a feature length movie, which obviously is very different than anything that Chaplin had previously done. Like there's attention to the detail, like the chase on the rooftop, you know, when he's running after the kid in the car, that's like an amazing, you know, beautiful sequence with a lot of production design elements that look really good. Um, even like the alleyway where they have the fight sequence and then, you know, the little apartment itself, which I mean, I think was one of the most iconic locations in any silent movie. Um, it's an, it is, it's a classic movie. I would agree. It's not my favorite Chaplin movie. I think it's either, for me, it's, city lights or modern times but like this is clearly a stepping stone in his career he was perfectionist allegedly this movie took about five years to make it took a long time to get the financing he got the financing out of italy because most american studios didn't believe that movie moviegoers would want to see a drama a feature-length drama and uh, the movie paid huge dividends one of the interesting things about charlie chaplin too i remember reading i and i've never seen the original richard attenborough film which i think we talked about last week but Chaplin didn't lose a lot of money in the depression because he didn't really believe in banks. And I, I believe he had all of his money just in bills. And so was able to kind of recoup uh, any money income he was able to make. But, you know, he didn't, he didn't uh, embrace talkies after 1928, like modern times, city lights, uh, you know, uh, uh, the great dictator. Those are all after 1928. Those are all in the sound era. So, you know, kudos to him for, um, believing in the power of silent movies and i think this movie really uh holds well and i, I think it would hold well uh with audiences even young young audiences today who really haven't been exposed to many silent films i watched it with my five-year-old he loved it yeah it moves quickly it's pretty you know easy to follow but but it, it's impactful and it's emotional mm -hmm. and jackie coogan was pretty famous too because he actually made a lot of money as a kid, but I believe his mother and stepfather squandered all of his money. And as a result, they made the Coogan law, which is that when, un, until an actor turns 18 or something like that, they have to, you know, keep the actor's money in a certain place and there are strings attached to how it's spent. So, um, you know, in some ways that I, that's also sort of an influential film history aspect of this film. Yeah. I will say it's not my favorite Chaplin either that I, I think modern times is my favorite. I mean that that one it's it's got so much just so much going on and it's it's the silliest but it might also be the most um one of the more um biting social commentaries as well. Uh and yeah, that one that one's just brilliant. But th this definitely, I mean being his first feature length film. Uh at least his his first that, that was all him. It, it it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's interesting that the movie was made 100 years ago. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we talk about how narratives in filmmaking and visual storytelling are changing all the time. And I think we're kind of resistant to it. We don't talk a lot about, you know, the uh, extended universes of miniseries or things like that. But, like, what he was doing in 1921 was maybe not too different from what, like, for example, um, you know, Barry Jenkins is doing with Underground Railroad, you know, like exploring these stories in a lot more depth and detail than what audiences were used to before. So I don't know, it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, new innovations in storytelling may look different, but the idea of innovative, innovating storytelling uh, is still the same even after 100 years. 
I mean, you could say that Charlie Chaplin like invented indie indie films too, because he he told stories that were impactful by doing less, and that that's like what the whole indie movement is about: is tell a story and and make a point without necessarily hitting you over the head with it, without without over sensational sensationalizing everything. Um, and I think the kid is definitely an example of of doing as little as possible, but still. Uh, to to bring about such a great story. Yeah, and I, well, where I thought you were going with that is that he was also an indie in the sense that he formed his own studio, United Artists, too. with Mary that Pickford too. and Douglas Fairbanks. But that you know that was a little different. That was I think a little after this movie. But yeah, I mean he was like a total total auteur. I, I would also say like one of cinema's first auteurs. Like there's uh, an, a distinctive, discernible style to his movies, and of course his comic persona. Chaplin-esque and I don't know do you think is he greater than Buster Keaton because I love Buster Keaton too and like this is right around the time of Buster Keaton's movies like Our Hospitality and uh, Sherlock Jr. and some of the other ones but like I mean to me Buster Keaton had the greater gags but Chaplin was maybe the greater filmmaker I'd say that's fair um I probably enjoy Chaplin's films more uh I think the thing that you got to remember about Buster Keaton too is I think Buster Keaton started doing this before Charlie Chaplin. Like, I think the general was like 19. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong. The general no. general was 26. Oh, 26, 1926. Okay. So then, yeah, it, full contemporaries, but he was making his own films, writing and directing too. But the thing that's different about the two of them is after the general Buster Keaton lost that and he had to go into the studio system and he never made another Keaton original again where Charlie Chaplin was able to keep what was his for his entire career and that's um and I think that's why his films are remembered in such higher esteem and the fact that pretty much all of his films he played the same character just in completely different situations and circumstances in a lot of ways Buster Keaton kind of did the same thing too but but Charlie Chaplin transformed himself and made himself an icon in in his look Todd, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen as much Keaton as I've seen Chaplin, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you guys, basically. And I mean, I think Chaplin was probably a better actor. I, I think the the style of Keaton is a little bit more difficult to shoot, but I, I mean, Chaplin's movies are so distinct. Like the execs that he was the, basically the first auteur, so... I don't know. I mean, I'm not... I mean, I, I haven't seen as many silent movies as I probably should, but... Yeah, Keaton was a little bit more of a physical comedian, um, and and willing to go to go all out to get the to get the shot. I mean, I think uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., where where the whole house falls on top of him and he's in the window. I mean, that's he he did that. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, he he had he was much more the the physical presence where where Chaplin was maybe more the storyteller. Yeah. What about you, Zach? Oh, I, I, I mean, I grew up probably more with Buster Keaton's movies, so I'm a little more biased toward maybe Keaton. Um, I think Keaton had a more prodigious output, maybe. Um, but I think the biggest difference is that Chaplin like told stories, you know, whereas Keaton's movies are much more kind of focused on the gags themselves, like you said, you know, 
Um, you're right, the house falling on him or him going through the, you know, and Steamboat Bill Jr. going like through the boats and, uh, you know, crazy shit like that. I mean, getting shot out of a cannonball. I mean, I, I think there were limits to like what Chaplin would be willing to do and, and Harold Lloyd to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Chaplin did some cool stuff too. I always like to show my students the clip of um, in modern times when they're rollerblading in the abandoned um, grocery store. Oh yeah. Because everyone thinks that shit's real. And it's not. It was a hanging mat. It was like a cool special <laughs> effect. But both of them were also really big pioneers in early special effects, which which makes their movies stand out too in a lot of cool ways. At the same time, Keaton, a lot of his were were like the house actually did fall on him. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and like yeah. in the general, he actually had an entire like water tower full of water fall on top of him. Well, it was I, the mo- it, it was a two million dollar uh, gag when the train collided. I mean, it was the most expensive shot in movie history too. Yeah, yeah. But 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 they did uh, use a lot of like forced perspective. Like Harold Lloyd, you know, in Safety Last wasn't like going over clock. right. It was like a forced perspective shot. But right. you know, it looks pretty realistic even today, which says mm-hmm. something about you know practical effects versus CGI, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Anyway, I've not seen Chaplin. Is it worth watching? I just, every time I put it on, I've fallen asleep. I find it insufferably boring, but I do think that Robert Downey Jr. It looks a lot like Charlie Chaplin. It it is, it is stunning what he's able to do in that performance. I will say that. Um, I could see, I could see how it gets, how it could get a little boring. Um, But I I love the movie. It's one of my favorite movies of that year. And uh, I, I find it, a movie that is so it's so educational and giving you some of that backstory of who Charlie Chaplin was and how he became who he was, Uh, especially being told by a guy like Richard Attenborough, who, who definitely told real stories um, and, and told them well. But the problem I have with that movie is it's just like the backstory of him, you know, brushing shoulders with Douglas Fairbanks and other famous people in Hollywood. It's like I've never been like compelled by the actual filmmaking in the movie itself. It seems more like a social biography of of uh, the people that he hobnobbed with. But maybe I, ha- I haven't seen the whole thing. That's, uh, you know, that's why I get bored of it. It's been a while since I've watched it, too. So it it, it might be something that. He was on TCM just a couple weeks ago, and I was. I, I, I wanted to watch it, and I was like, eh, this, is kind of, this is not that great, unfortunately. But but Robert Downey Jr., it was great. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that is our anniversary review, our 100th anniversary review of Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. All right, so we're going to go from that to talk about some more uh, child acting and child performances in our deep dive uh, it's not celebrating an anniversary. I think what 18th anniversary, which I think is is uh, is saying something and and kind of significant in the fact that we're we're talking about a, a, a you know what a movie about a bunch of fourth or fifth graders that were we're we're looking at the the uh, that this movie could is now legal, but because uh, <laughs> it's its 18th anniversary, we're talking about School of Rock. Now listen, you guys. You know what? Normal kids would have been stoked to slack off, but not you guys, because you're not normal. You're special. And because I think you guys have the right attitude, I think it's time we started our new class project. A science project? No, it's called Rock Band. And uh, we we decided to uh, to look at this movie this week, uh, really in in honor of a of a tragedy that happened recently. Um, the uh, oh, I don't have the name in front of me. Kevin the, uh, Alexander Clark. 
There we go. Kevin Alexander Clark, the, the uh, kid who played the drummer, uh, Freddie, in this movie, uh, tragically was killed in a bicycle accident a week or two ago in Chicago. Uh, n- never acted again after being in School of Rock. Uh, but he was one of the standouts in the cast, I thought. So uh, it it was kind of a kind of sad when that happened. And we thought, you know what? Let's we all love this movie. Let's let's deep dive it kind of uh, in in memory and honor of him. So let's get into this. We're starting with our trivia, as always. And I'm hosting trivia this time. So let's see here. Let, we're going to start with uh, we're going to start with Todd and then we're going to go to uh, to Zach. So, Zach, you can uh, you can back out for a second here. There we go. Zach's gone. All right. So we have eight questions worth uh, a total of 16 points. And uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how this goes. All right. I thought this was. I wouldn't have been able to come up with trivia questions for this. This was hard. <laughs> I, I feel like it would be hard. All right. Well, let, let's see. Let's see how, how I did here. Uh, what is Patty's job? The Sarah Silverman character. What is her job? You know, I was actually thinking about that. I was like, I don't even know. What what does she do? I, I was actually thinking that. I like, thought, I have no idea what she does. Uh, I'm going to say she is a lawyer. She is... I'm the assistant to the mayor of the city. Okay. He says that in the very first, right. very first scene. All right. Um, next question. This one's worth two points. Why is Ned needed to sub at Horace Green? And who is he subbing for? Uh, well, the, the teacher broke her leg on the way to school. That is correct. And what was her name? <sighs> This is, I don't know. He, I, he calls her like Dewey says her like calls her something, but I, I don't know. I don't remember what what her name was. It's Miss Dunham. Dunham. I think he calls her Dunham, or Dum Dum, or something. Something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, Miss Dum Dum. I think that was it. All right. Uh, what band were Dewey and Ned in together? Maggot Death. Maggot Death is correct. Um, what is this? Is a, this is a Todd question here? What is above the chalkboard in the front of the classroom? The presidents. The presidents is correct. All right. This this question is worth four points. Uh, name the four songs that were sung in Dewey's audition of the kids. Oh, the okay, the for the backup singers. Yeah, yeah. The sin- oh. what songs were sung? Memory, memory is uh, correct. Chain, chain, chain. Yep, chain um, of fools. Yeah, that's the name of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Amazing Grace. That is correct. And the sun will come out tomorrow. Yes, that is correct. Also, good job. I, I, I okay. I, I was not understanding your question. <laughs> what songs were sung? Were sung. I know that's what I was saying. I was like, I mean, I remember the beats of the song. So like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All okay. right. Um, next question. Uh, how does the handshake with Lawrence end? Like the last three steps. Uh, it's only it's one point, but if you you 
if you get the last three steps is what you need. The last part. I mean, there's shoot it, kaboot it is the last two. Right? Yeah, there was now... It's like, let's rock, let's rock today. And then he says, like, knuckle knuckle crack or something. I'm going to give you half a point. It was slap it, shoot it, kaboot it. Slap it, shoot it, kaboot it. All right. All right. Uh, this one's worth three points. Uh, what makes the kids mad? It, when they're writing their song, what makes the kids mad? I mean, how 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 many points is it worth? Three. There are three things that that, that are mentioned that when when Dewey uh, writes the song. Chores, allowance, and bullies. Chores, allowance, and bullies. That is all correct. And the last question is also worth three points. Uh, what are the... I, I have to give this. I'm the math teacher as, as it is. What are the three math problems that Dewey sings? Three minus four is... Yep, yep. That's six one. Six times a billion is... That's that's and two. Fifty-five more is forty-five. Fifty-five is forty-five more than what is the answer? Oh, I'm gonna give you half a point. It's fifty-four is forty-five more. Isn't that what because I said? He says no. You said fifty-five. Oh, I know the answer is nine. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I, I thought I said fifty-four. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you half. You said fifty-five. It's all good. If it was fifty-five, then Dewey would have been right. But uh. All right, here we go. Let's no, bring back Zach. Wrong. It would have been 10 then. So I'm saying he would have been right. No, because he says. Anyways, okay, we'll yeah. talk about it later. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, Todd kind of nailed this. I have got eight questions worth 16 points, and Todd got 13 out of the 16 points. Nice. So let's see how you do. First question. Uh, the Sarah Silverman character, her name is Patty. What is her job? She works for the mayor. Yes, she's assistant to the mayor of the city. Uh, question number two. This one is worth two points. Why is Ned needed to sub at Horace Green, and who is he subbing for? Ms. Dunham, and uh, she broke her leg. That is correct, both times. Uh, next question. What band were Dewey and Ned in together? Um... Metal death? Uh, that is incorrect. It's maggot death. Maggot death. Not even a half point. I mean, no, because like mega death is a different band. <laughs> so right. I mean, I'll I, I'll I'll consider. Did Todd get I'll, that? Todd got it. Yeah, yeah Todd got it. Lame. The one wearing the Slipknot shirt definitely got the name of the hard rock band. Um, next question. Uh, this is a total Todd question. What is above the chalkboard in the front of the classroom? Uh, the president's. The president's is correct. Uh, next question. This question is worth four points. Uh, when uh, the kids are auditioning, what are the four songs that are sung in the audition? So you, when they're auditioning for Dewey or when they're auditioning at Battle of Bands? When they're auditioning for Dewey to be backup singers. What oh, are the, the four songs singers. that are sung? Okay. The, one, the only songs that are sung. Todd had well, trouble with this too. <laughs> memory. 
That is correct. Which Summer sings. Yep. Um, chain, Chain, Chain. Chain of Fools, yes. That was that was the name of the song that I gave to. <laughs> yeah, Todd, Todd, Todd gave the same name, yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I give up. Uh, the other two were Tomorrow from Annie and uh, Amazing Grace. Okay. Uh, next, uh, next question. What is the final part of Dewey's handshake with Lawrence? No it's idea. Three things. The, three things. I don't know. Something with his two fingers. I have no idea. No, no. Slap it, shoot it, kaboot it. It's a very nice. long shake. It's a very long shake. We're going to have to mm -hmm. practice that one. Uh, next question. This one's worth three points. Um, when uh, Dewey writes the song with the kids, what three things make the kids mad? Writes what song with the kids? The song about things that make them mad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think Terry's got to work on his phrasing a little bit. I don't know. Some, yeah, some what what kicks them weird. off? Okay, that's better. That makes more sense. Homework, um, chores, and uh, bullies. It is chores, bullies, and no allowance. Oh, okay. And the last question were three points. Being the math teacher, I had to ask this. What are the three math math problems that Dewey sings? Six times a billion. That's one of them. 54 minus 45. That no, is also eight. correct. And three minus four. And that is also correct. There we go. All right. Well, Todd wins 13 to 11. I think it's because he got the Todd question about the songs, which was a very Todd question. Well, the, the Todd question was actually the the Present. what's in the background of the scene. Oh, because that those are always the kind, kind of questions he asks. And he got all the songs once he understood the, the question. They're the only songs that are sung when the kids audition. So the question I was preparing you to ask was, what are all the CDs that uh, Dewey gives out. To oh. Yeah, for Blondie, 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 Hendrix for, for Hendrix. Zach. He Rush, gives Zach, Zach, yes, Zach got Rush. Yes, yeah, uh, Kurt to, Solo for Freddie. Yes, too. yeah. To, to Lawrence. Oh, that would have been a good one. Yes, the Lawrence. Yeah, and then inexplicably, the yeah, Pink Floyd, the solo, I, yeah, vocal solo for Tamika, which sort of an odd choice, but okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> Pink Floyd, not always known for their vocals, I guess, but okay. Uh, I guess he had to right. improvise. He wasn't expecting Tamika to uh, belt it out like she did. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's see here, Zach. I think you you're usually you're kind of the biggest fan of this one, so I'm gonna let you start out. Tell us all about uh, all about School of Rock and uh, and uh, your your experience with it and why you love it. All right. Well, School of Rock came out in I believe fall of 2003. And uh, I was not expecting this to be a good movie. It looked the trailers looked really dumb, um, and uh, it just it looked like the Sound of Music meets Sister Act meets Dangerous Minds meets every sort of inspirational teacher movie. But then when you saw that Richard Linklater was the director, I, you know, and the guy who made Dazed and Confused, and uh, and that weird rotoscope movie, 
uh, I was like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm, I, you know, maybe I could see liking this. And of course it was, it was a great freaking movie. And uh, it was one of those movies where like, I remember the experience of seeing in a theater. I think a lot of families were there that day. And it was like, you know, eh, is this going to be a good movie? And everybody left the theater just jacked up, you know? Like, that's probably an experience that will never be replicated again. But, like, leaving the theater after watching that movie with that song stuck in your head uh, was a great feeling and a great experience. And, uh, you know, Richard Linklater, I think, really put himself on the more mainstream map with this movie. And, of course, as we've... 2021 has been the year of Jack Black on this podcast. Apparently, this yeah. Jack Black, you know... <laughs> We've got the shallow Hal Jack Black, the high fidelity Jack Black. We've got it all combined into one fully formed movie star. And this, of course, led to, you know, Nacho Libre, King Kong, The Holiday. Who could forget that? But, of course, Jumanji and, and everything great that he's done. But this was really the role. And he was nominated for a Golden Globe, which he was totally deserving of. And he didn't get the Oscar nomination. I remember really pulling for that and being really pissed off that Johnny Depp did. Give me a freaking break. Okay, uh, Jack Black in this movie acts circles around Johnny Depp. Maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But uh, in other words, yeah, I love this movie. Great movie, classic. And uh, low-key, I think a lot about Dewey Finn when I, as I am uh, teaching. I think he is a great, great teacher. Except for the whole being hungover part. But, you know... Mistakes happen. That means I was drunk yesterday. <laughs> means you're an alcoholic. No, it doesn't. Uh, I love the fact that this has been turned now turned into a Broadway musical written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, <laughs> the, yes, the guy who did Fan of the Opera has also now written the School of Rock musical, and I've heard a couple of songs from it, and it it seems pretty awesome. I can't wait till that. That show goes like on tour and uh, and I'm able to go see it. Uh, yeah, this movie is I'm I'm kind of in the same spot. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think it, I think we saw it once it was on DVD. And it was a complete surprise. Yeah, uh, it, it looked just kind of silly and uh, another just. Silly kind of kids movie, but it's it's not a kids movie, but it's a movie kids can definitely enjoy. Uh, and it it's it really is. Uh, it really is a one of a kind in so many different ways and how it's able to, to put everything together. And, and I agree, Jack Black. I mean, if this movie wasn't written for Jack Black, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't see anybody else at that time, even being close to being able to pull something like this off. So, uh, so yeah, Todd, how about you? Yeah, I remember the first time I watched it, it was it was with a bunch of friends from high school and we had rented two movies and one of them was this was the one that the our friend's younger sister wanted to watch. And so we turned this out on just like out of spite, like, oh, this is basically like a PG movie. And we were all loving it from the moment it started. And none of us were expecting that. We saw some of all of us in the the child characters. And yeah, I, I've loved the movie ever since. I think I've seen the movie probably in, in parts, probably 20 times. And uh, it, it, it's always on TV. It's, it, it never disappoints. And Jack Black is obviously amazing. And yeah, Mike White had to have written it for him. And, and it doesn't feel like a Linklater movie because I feel like, is this his only like non-R-rated <laughs> movie that he's ever done? I mean, it's it like cares. a... Okay, so that, I mean, That's okay, but well, how is this movie even PG thirteen? I feel like it should be PG. Like, there's nothing in it that makes it PG thirteen either. But uh, according to the DVD, it's rated PG thirteen for rude humor. 
Yeah, but I don't even know what that could be. I mean, it's pretty inoffensive in every way. I mean, he mentions tequila at one point and getting wasted or something, but that's about it. But I don't. I mean, I yeah, I I love the movie. Yeah, one of uh, Linklater's like one of those movies in his resume that puts him above almost every other filmmaker working today. It's just like, oh yeah, he's got that in his wheelhouse too. You know. Yeah, I'm. I mean, in the hands of another director, this movie sucks. I mean, it, it could have been so bad. Like, we should do a power ranking of movies where the IMDb premise sounds terrible, but it's actually a really good movie. This would be in the top five. And it's, I think, all due to Richard Linklater and Jack Black. I mean, the, the, the chemistry, the star power, the imagination. You got to think a lot of this shit's improvised. Like, it is just spontaneous magic that this movie has. And uh, it's... I will talk about recasting, but it's hard to imagine anyone else doing this and achieving the same level of success. Well, and just to, his ability to be able to work that room with those kids. And like like you said, so much of it, you know, had to be improvised and him just kind of playing with them. And, and he's able to do it because he's genuinely goofy. But at the same time, he he's in complete control. Like, you know, in those scenes, when they're doing those scenes, yeah, Linkletter's behind the camera. Jack Black is, like, directing those scenes as they're happening in how he teaches the class and how he runs the class. And you, and you can just tell. He, he's the one that's getting everyone through everything that's happening. And, and, yeah, I hadn't thought about it before, but you're right. He deserved an Oscar nomination for this and how he was able to do that. Yeah, and going back to Todd's point for a second about how unlinked later this movie is, I mean, I agree with that point overall, but something that stuck out to me watching it this time was a very common Linklater trope, which is that as anti-establishment as we think Linklater is, Linklater loves school and he loves educators and teachers. Like, he's never villainize the institution of schools. He thinks that learning and education is like really important. I mean, even think about like the last scene of uh, that baseball movie uh, or, and uh, everybody wants every, some. everybody wants some and like, and the teacher in uh, Days and Confused who's like, you know, those white old aristocrats, they just didn't want to pay their taxes. I mean, he loves teachers and I, I did that as a teacher, but I also think, you know, it's accurate because I think when you have a really cool teacher who's passionate like Dewey is in this movie, like that's way more powerful than saying screw authority and, and screw the man, you know? Yeah, that, that, uh, I, I was just looking at it. That Oscar race would have been so much more interesting if you throw Jack Black into that. But screw Jude Law. I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, Zach was crapping on Johnny Depp, but I mean, you've got yeah, Jude Law horrible. for Cold Mountain. That was horrible. Um, nobody saw House of Sand and Fog. Oh no! Ben uh, Kingsley was great in that movie, though. That I'm, was that was an okay nomination. I would dare but, say that Ben Kingsley was more deserving than Sean Penn or uh, Bill Bill Murray. Leave leave well, Ben yeah. Kingsley and, and Jack Black. The others. Well, and and it came down it came down to Sean Penn and Bill Murray. That's really what everyone. I mean, the, it was a two horse race between the two of them. Um, Johnny Depp. I mean that that was such an iconic thing. And maybe you could say that Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean took the spot Jack Black could have had. And it's like Jack Black had no opportunity because uh, you already had kind of a, a PG kind of gimmick uh, pick in there from Johnny Depp and Pirates. But 
Listen, it would have been so cool to have both of well, them in there. Okay, so the Golden Globes even screwed this up because I mean I, we're not talking about how Nicolas Cage and Paul Giamatti also exactly. were not nominated there, exactly. and I mean yeah. there were a ton of great comedic performances that year, and yeah, Jack Black was uh, obviously one of them, but the Oscars that year were all, I mean it was a weird it was a weird Oscar ceremony. Yeah, I was gonna say they're like the teacher next door who thinks she hears music and uh, she must be on crack. And that's what the Oscar voters were like that year, <laughs> not giving it to Nicolas Cage, you know, and not giving it to Jack Black and Paul Giamatti, and like, and there are other great performances too that year. But I mean, come on, Johnny Depp, give me a break. That might have been the joke that made it PG thirteen. Now that I think about it. <laughs> Oh, she must have been on crack, kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so let's say, okay, yeah, so it says, what? Rude humor and drug references. I think that's the only reference to drugs. <laughs> Something I noticed this time is when uh, Dewey's trying to convince the Battle of the Bands guy to let the kids perform, he says that they're patients at St. Margarita's Children's Ward. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. I'd never noticed that line before, but maybe that contributed to the PG-13. <laughs> Uh, I also thought that could have been a trivia question. I'm I'm looking here. Apparently, uh, School of Rock won an award at the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards, and it won the award for Best Movie for Grownups Who Refused to Grow Up. I was probably created for the movie. Probably. Yeah. Probably. I could see that happening. All right. Well, uh, Obviously, we love this movie, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this. But let's get into some of the stuff that we're we're going to look at with this. We have a, uh, a Mount Rushmore we're going to build here. In honor of one Dewey Finn, um, we, we're, we're kind of running out of ideas for, for Jack Black films here, since this is the third one we've done a deep dive of in, what, the last two months. So uh, we are going with the Mount Rushmore of movie slackers. Because I think it's pretty safe to say that Dewey is definitely a slacker. So, uh, yeah. So Mount Rushmore of movie slackers. Is Dewey Finn a consensus pick? Or do we want to see how this goes first? I don't know that he's actually a slacker. <laughs> so I, I don't... I, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would vote no. That the... Yeah, I say we hold off until we see uh, what we come up with. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Todd, you go first then. Well, the, the the one that's the easiest one to come up with is Billy Madison. Like, oh, he's ah, yes. Like, he's a, like, what, the heir to a a billionaire's fortune, basically, uh, like, a to his the whole company, and he does nothing all day but, but get wasted with his buddies and fall asleep by the pool. And I mean, that, to, to the fact, to the tune that he actually has to go back to middle school to uh, get an education or elementary school. Like, I mean, you don't get more slackery than Billy Madison. <laughs> Shampoo is better. No conditioner is better. Uh, stop staring at me, Schwan. That's a great, that's a great pick. I've that's never seen pick. Billy Madison. Uh, wow. How, I don't even know how it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's really dumb, but it's really funny. <laughs> like, like it, it's it's like you take Happy Gilmore, you take out the golf, and just make him a a loser, 
that's that's probably how I was sold to the studio. I'm sure too. Well, what? Yeah, Happy Gilmore came first. Well, I guess, right? Yeah, Happy Gilmore yeah. was around the same time. Yeah, yeah, and that was like his first starring role, like uh, sort of like that, whatever that going overboard movie or something. Yeah. All right, all right. So we got Billy Madison. I like that pick. I like that pick. Zach, you're next. Uh, do I just go the self-indulgent pick? Uh, probably. Why not? Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, Breckenmeyer as Travis Birkenstock in Clueless. He's a skateboarder. <laughs> he gets into a 12-step program by the end of the movie, and he does enter the skating competition. But uh, you know, he offers Brittany Murphy drugs within the first 10 seconds of meeting her in the lunch line. Um, you know, he gives an acceptance speech for most tardies, 38 tardies, uh, and he thanks the people at McDonald's for making those little um, breakfast McSandwiches. And he's just the best, and he's the greatest slacker of all time. He's the inspiration for the greatest TV slacker of all time, Jesse Pinkman. So he has to be at least considered the greatest in the in the running for the greatest uh, movie slacker of all time. I don't know. We got to make a distinction between stoner and slacker. Like I don't know. I don't know that they're all actually the same thing. I believe Cher refers to him as a Lodi, I think. The Lodis like to sit over there in their grassy knoll, and no girl would ever, no respectful girl would ever actually date one of them. And you went with Billy Madison. I don't know. I've never seen Billy Madison, so I'm going with the self-indulgent pick. All right, all right. So now it's to me. Oh, man. I feel like any of the ones that I've written down here, you're going to There's so many. For. There's so this, many this yet. Could that, have been a power ranking. There's so many yet. Yet I feel like so many are are not necessarily great picks. So I'm going to go with. All right, I'm I'm going with it. I'm going. With, I'm going Wooderson. I think Wooderson is a great slacker, and and probably the better movie slacker in the Linkletter um, universe than Dewey. Uh, I mean. Just, all you need to know to know how much of a slacker he is is just that line of that's a great thing about high school girls. We just keep getting older. They stay the same age. I mean, he's hanging out with high schoolers on a Friday night when he's been graduated for who knows how long. <laughs> Indefinite. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Long enough that he can buy them their beers. Um, working for he, the city. Yeah, he's working for the city uh yeah the garbage man pretty much right <laughs> pretty much pretty much got those or, or, tickets though or or he he's he's you know holding the the slow and stop signs next to the construction site on the road um yeah so he's uh he is as slacker as you come and uh i, I love his when mcconaughey explained his whole uh all right all right all right thing it came from wooderson and he said he he said it came from he thought about it and Wooderson needs three things. He needs he needs his car, he needs his weed, and he's sitting next to Slater, so he's got his weed, and he needs his his girls. And he's like, if he's got all three, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> and that's and that's where it came from. I mean, so it it's it's perfect. And so Wooderson's my pick. The problem with that pick, which is a noble pick, of course, is that I feel like Slater is a bigger slacker because Wooderson at least has a job. He has a car. He has some sort of motivation. But compared to Slater, the Rory Cochrane character in yeah. that movie, like that, I mean, that's that's what makes him lose some points for me. But obviously it's it's an inspired pick. Well, well, but uh, but like Slater, uh, Slater is so similar to you could say he's very similar to Travis from Clueless. 
Well, it goes and then back he's to kind the of like he's the stoner guy. Stoner yeah, versus stoner in high school. Yeah. It doesn't make you a slacker. I don't know. That, that's a it, good distinction. Well, and and yeah, I, I'll take I'll take the uh, the twenty something guy hanging out with all the high school kids on Friday night over the stoner high schooler that's hanging out with the twenty something that he's selling his weed to. So, <laughs> all right. So we got Billy Madison. We got Travis Birkenstock. We got Wooderson. I think like we can say all three of those are slackers. I don't think I think so. To. I, 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 I like the three we've got so far. Now we got to pick one. Pick one more. The dude. Oh, That's what I thought you were going with Terry. I, I should have gone with the dude. I had completely forgotten about the dude. I think that. Yeah. Yeah. The dude is a good one. I actually was thinking you could almost say that Charlie Chaplin's the tramp is a slacker. I mean, not yeah. not just in the kid, but in like every movie the tramp is in. He's a slacker. <laughs> uh, so I, I was thinking that. Um, but yeah, the dude. I mean, the other one I was considering was uh, Jeff Spicoli. But I mean, Zach pretty much took that with uh, Travis. So, yeah, that's yeah, that's very similar character. And of course, Scott in The King of Staten Island. Mm. But, you know. Terry hasn't seen it yet. I haven't. The other one I was kind of thinking of that was that's kind of like borderline slacker is Jason Siegel's character in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Where yeah, I mean he 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 writes the dark ominous music for <laughs> for a cop procedural show, and that's all he does while he sits at home and cries about his girlfriend breaking up with him. Yeah, I tried to stay away from the Apatow universe because that could be a whole list on it's a slacker and a best slacker in an Apatow movie. Because yeah, then, yeah, yeah. then you'd have to go Dale, Dale and Saul and Pineapple Express. But again, maybe that's the stoner. But it's certainly, you know, all of Ben's friends and Knocked Up as well. And oh, for it's sure. A, it, well, but then Linklater too. I mean, he has a movie called Slacker. I mean, true. like <laughs> all of his characters are slackers. And Jesse's thought- kind of a slacker. <laughs> I thought about uh, Chris Farley and Tommy Boy, and also uh, we didn't talk about female slackers. Um, Bridget Fonda and Jackie Brown as Melanie, I, for for me, would mm. would take the cake. But then quiet slacker, I think Todd will appreciate this pick. The main character in American Movie, like that guy's a total <laughs> slacker, but he's also a great filmmaker. So that would be the my winner for best documentary slacker. I, and I his like friend. It. I think. Uh, have you ever Tom, seen American movie, Terry? I've not. Oh my I've god! I, okay, that's when I win trivia next. You know, January, I'll sign that to you. That, I think you love that movie. I think Tommy Boy and Billy Madison are kind of in, cut yeah, in the same mold. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right, I, I like what we got here. Okay, so we're going with Billy Madison, Travis Birkenstock, Wooderson, and the dude as the ultimate movie slackers. I mean that. Yeah, consensus on the dude. I think that. That's definitely the way to go. All from like a five-year period in the 90s. I know. <laughs> and I like how they're like mentally at all different ages. Like one is a five-year-old, one is like a 45-year-old, and it kind of runs the runs the gamut. And everywhere in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like it. I like it. All right. Cool. Cool. That turned out better than I thought it was going to. All right. Time to recast. Recast School of Rock. Um, I thought about just being stupid and going with like the original Broadway cast, but I didn't. Uh, so let's get into this. Dewey Finn 
originally played by Jack Black. Todd, you're going to go first. Obviously not an easy one to recast. Uh, I I wrote down James Franco because I, I can see a lot of the charisma stuff that Jack Black does that Franco could do. I don't know if he can actually sing or not. I mean, other than his, of course, his epic singing in uh, Spring Breakers. But I don't know if he can rock sing. But uh, I, I, I would pay to see James Franco do that role. That's not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, it definitely needs to be someone who who you can see pull off just the charisma of being able to, to be with the kids. I went with Chris Pratt, um, yeah, who I, I think is cut yeah. from a similar mold of, of Jack Black, especially when you're considering how, how that works and, and just how he, how he can interact with the kids and everything. I could see him do it. Zach, how about you? I went with, with Pete Davidson uh, because the best part of King of Staten Island was his interaction with kids, and he's musical. If you've ever seen the sketch with him and Timothy Chalamet doing their Instagram rapping, um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd watch that. Nice, nice. Can't you just see Chris Pratt going, math is a wonderful thing. <laughs> I could totally see it. <laughs> okay, now uh, the real Ned Schneebly. Uh, played by the writer of the film, Mike White. Todd, who do you got? Well, if we're going writer, actor, I, I wrote down Stephen Merchant. And I feel like he could really easily do that oh. role. But for if you're just doing a straight character, it's Thomas Middleditch. I mean, he basically, is it, that's who he is. He's, he's a Ned. Those, those are all better than mine. I went with Bill Hader, who I, I think could would be fine, but Yours Playing are better. Great character, yeah. He, I mean, he. That's a good one too. Yeah, yeah. And I could see Chris Pratt and Bill Hader being in Maggot Death together. <laughs> All right, Zach. All right. Well, my pick. I know I have some age discontinuity with, but I can't help but rewatch this movie and think of this character and this actor <laughs> so much. And that is Paul Lieberstein from The Office. He plays Toby. Mike White <laughs> looks like Toby from The Office, and so if we're going to uh, recast it, why not have Paul Lieberstein, who may actually be um, older in real life than uh, Mike White? So it, it's probably not going to work age-wise, but uh, it's you know they're basically the same person. Dewey, wait, I, I need you to move out. <laughs> oh, that's great. Toby, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the relationship between Dewey and Ned is basically the relationship between Michael, Michael Scott and Toby. And Toby, yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, except that they were actually were friends at one point. All right, next we have Principal Mullins, played by the one and only Joan Cusack. Todd. Well, I have Chris Pratt's ex, Anna Faris, in that role. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I th that also not an easy role to recast, but because Joan Cusack does her thing. But uh, Anna Faris is underused in, in movies. And like that kind of supporting role where she could actually have some stuff to chew on would be interesting. Yeah, there is only one Joan Cusack, and she makes mm -hmm. every role that she gets just completely her. Absolutely. Um, I went with Rose Byrne. Because uh, she's hilarious, but she's also really, really good at trying to be the serious one and not necessarily being able to pull it off. <laughs> but just like Joan Cusack is trying to do in this. So, uh, so yeah, I'm go uh, Rose Byrne. You have a very funny cast. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
those those people should get together for some movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, once Chris Pratt starts doing comedies again and stops making action films. Yep. All right, Zach. Uh, I went with Kristen Wiig, um, kind of in the same down the same path as you. But I could also see Melora Walters playing uh, Principal Mullins. She was Jan on The Office. But I think she's probably too old uh, at this point. But if we're keeping the office metaphor, it would have to be Melora Waters, whatever her name is. But no, I, I like Kristen Wiig. Melora Walters, isn't she from Magnolia? Uh, maybe I'm thinking... Uh, um, you stumped me there, Todd. Uh, yeah. You're talking, you're, you're talking about Jan in, in The Office, right? Yeah, I'm talking about Jan in The Office. Her, is yeah, it name Melora? There's no one name. That, yeah, Melora Walters is not in the office. God damn it. Well, then, yeah. who am I thinking of, Perry? Melora, Har- Melora Hardin, excuse me. Okay. I was trying to find it. Malo- How many Meloras are there? <laughs> I thought I was like, Melora Walters. That is, I mean, I was, was she in Magnolia? Yeah, that's the one that uh, John C. Riley is uh, dealing with. Oh, the kind of crazy one? The drug-addicted one? Yeah. She, I changed my. I, I go with Melora Walters. Let's do it. Why not? Let's bring her back. Let's resuscitate her career. Uh, all right. Last one is uh, Patty, who we all said we don't know if she's ever actually referred. But we're not recasting the kids. I mean, you can if you want to. Uh, but I, mean, I have uh, Brooklyn Prince all for, for every well, well, role. I'm sure you did. Yeah. So. Uh, so yeah. Uh, Sarah Silverman's character, Ned's girlfriend. I mean, that's really what her name is. Aubrey Ned's Plaza. girlfriend. God, yeah. That, that's not that's a good one. That's a, it's I, over. I went with Olivia Munn, who's basically the same idea. <laughs> but yeah, Aubrey Plaza is good. I raised raise my goblet to the, <laughs> the gods of rock and Aubrey Plaza. That's a great pick. Uh, yeah, we were, we were on the same the same wavelength there. She Aubrey could play Plaza, Dewey in, like if she was the main character in the in the movie, that'd be interesting. <laughs> she oh, could do it. I was yeah. trying to think of a female Dewey, but yeah, she yeah she's in the right sort of uh, territory. I would think. I don't know if she's musical. Uh, was right. she musical in Black Bear? That movie you loved? No, she she's no music in that. Okay, and she had a little bit of singing in like her Spirit Awards monologue, maybe. She had a couple scenes. I don't know if she's saying them. I'm sure she could do it. Have you guys watched the 15-minute the YouTube compilation of Aubrey Plaza being awkward? It's one of the greatest YouTube compilation clips. It's almost as good as the Nicolas Cage loses his shit compilation. But, like, Aubrey Plaza, I mean, she's not acting. Like, that is really who she is. It's only 15 minutes long? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's multiple <laughs> compilations. I guess I'm only talking about the one that's been the most viewed, but it's it's uh, it's worth. I think it's worth a, a a deep dive at some point. If we're if we're ever going to deep dive YouTube clips, yeah, she is super awkward. Like her Hot Ones interview was completely ridiculous, <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, that, that's her. That's what she was doing in Funny People and like a lot of her movies. Well, and every time she hosts the the Independent Spirit Awards, I mean, that's her. You don't need a writer for that. That's just that's just per, that's pure charisma. I was also thinking like her character in uh, Scott Pilgrim too. It's the same. It's the same idea. Just hassling one of the main characters. Who would Nicolas Cage play? 
I wrote down the Battle of the Bands director, but I don't think he belongs in this movie at all. <laughs> I, I I wrote down one of the random random rock uh, rock band members that that's backstage in Battle of the Bands. And like age sixty, <laughs> like like the like the one like one of the guys who who takes uh takes Freddie back to the back to his van. <laughs> Nikki Cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't even know there was him until I was watching it this time. I was like, yeah, that's Nikki Cat. <laughs> Makes it even better for you, Todd. That's like one of your favorites. Uh yeah, yeah. He'd be the Nikki Cat character. <laughs> We're just chilling, man. We're just chilling. All right. So highest war obviously is Jack Black, but if Jack Black is disqualified, who's the highest war in this movie, Zach? I'm going to go with uh, Joan Cusack. I think that's also low-hanging fruit in, in some ways that we've already talked about. But she's awesome in this movie. She's one of the reasons why this movie um, is better than its IMDb synopsis page. A lesser filmmaker would have made, and a lesser actress would have made this role just a very standard you know, villain, uh, principal who wants to shut everything down, lame. This woman has like an interesting backstory because apparently she doesn't hold her liquor well and she really likes stevie nicks and she's very um how should we say insecure about her job and uh i've i think we need to deep dive some of the conspiracy theories about the romantic relationship between her and dewey which the movie conveniently solves at the end because she ends up hooking up with a no vacancy singer, which is perfect. I think they're perfect for each Does other. Does she and though? That's not the singer. That's or, a, that's sorry, the guitarist. Excuse me. Um, spider. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I love Joan Cusack in this movie, and uh, I'm sorry to take that away. If we're not doing Jack Black, I think she's the obvious one. Or any of the kids. I mean, you can't recast any of these kids. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, I was trying to think of. Uh, of it in terms of the kids but i wasn't going to come up with anything good uh but what i'm going to go with and you guys might hate this pick but i don't really care uh i'm going with uh adam pascalis theo I knew you were gonna uh, say that. yeah the, the lead that's singer for no pick. vacancy it totally is from and, and, yeah and that's why because at this point it it, it could have just been some random like no name guy but this is roger from rent like this is a guy who anyone who knows who knows broadway and knows knows that that scene knew him and he has such an iconic voice and you listen to like the no vacancy songs and you're you're not supposed to be listening to him but man that dude shows off his pipes in those songs and and no one has a voice quite like him so that that's that's who i'm going with that that's my pick for for highest war yeah, well, I, and well, I I love the end. Yeah, because he's so great is why the movie is different. Because like No Vacancy is actually really good. Like you're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to like them, but like they're supposed to be like these asshole moderately talented guys. But like he is really good, and their song is really good. Yeah, and and I mean it makes you actually kind of accept the fact that they won the thing because you know like I mean they kind of had a better song and they have a better singer, obviously. Well, and, and and you watch like that opening scene now, and but you watch it now, it's like, yeah, Dewey doesn't fit in this band. <laughs> yeah. Am I? Is it weird? Am I crazy to think that No Vacancy is modeled off of Nickelback? I just kept thinking Nickelback during their their performance, not necessarily their stage persona, but their music. I I could see Nickelback singing a song called Heartsick. I yeah. Really could. 
I, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you say that. I mean, if you take Nickelback's lead singer and put him in that role, it doesn't change the movie that much. But In 2003, I think they would have been riffing on Nickelback. Uh, yeah, I mean it's possible, but no, he he's just he's just so good. I, that that he's got such such an iconic voice. I think that it it might have been a riff on Nickelback, but I, I I listen to that and I just hear I hear the stuff from from uh, Rent and things like that. So also, is No Vacancy that far removed from Stillwater? I mean, maybe that's that's a hot take, but like better than Stillwater. <laughs> I think I think they have the same musical DNA, you know. If if we're if, if if it's like that chart that Dewey makes about you know hardcore rock, and then you know he writes all the names. Like I feel like No Vacancy and Stillwater are somewhere maybe almost connected. I mean, I think I think uh, Stillwater was one of uh, was one of Dewey's inspirations. Can we just get the conspiracy theory out of the way? It sounds like that no vacancy did deserve to win. I mean, that, that's what that, that's <laughs> you're saying everything but that, Todd. I know. I saw like I yeah. I mean, I, I think they probably deserve to win. I, I would I would listen to their song more than I would listen to the School of Rock song. Like they had everything better except for maybe the light show. <laughs> like the light, the light show is pretty badass, but you know. <laughs> See, I think the the problem is that it sounds like they already had that huge check. That was already written out to No Vacancy. I felt like No Vacancy was about to get signed by a major label. And, and it was just the whole Battle of Bands was a charade. It was just as Dewey basically accused them of. It was a beauty contest to get No Vacancy more playtime, more recognition. And they already had the check written out. You don't write out a check if it's if it's a fair competition. Like that check was pre-made. Like they needed to get rid of Dewey in order to in order to let them win the contest. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm I'm not saying it would have anything to do with Dewey. I just think that Battle of the Bands wanted to be the, the ones who said we were the ones who launched No Vacancy into worldwide fame. Well, and they had that one super fan, too. No Vacancy! That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the guy in Little Miss Sunshine that was... <laughs> yeah! <laughs> yeah, I don't have any other highest war. Like, you guys took the ones, like, I mean, Jack Black and Joan Cusack are really the only answers. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. yeah. All right. Worst performance. Uh, let's hear. Oh, I got to pick who's going first. You you should I, go, Terry. I, I should go first. I have one written down, but I don't remember which one it was. Um, <laughs> Give me one second here. Who did I write down? I wrote down. Oh. Oh yes, oh yeah. My my worst performance is uh, Neil, the the bassist for No Vacancy, um, because After No Vacancy. Yeah, yeah. He'd be played by Justin Long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, like in the in the scene where where uh, Dewey's out of the band, and it's like, I I, I hope we're still we're still friends. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> I, I I mean yeah. I, I still care about you. And then he's the guy after after School of Rock is done. He's he's the guy who's sitting on the couch like, "You guys rocked, man! How long have you been playing?" And he's just horrible. That, that's my pick. That's Neil. a good pick. Yeah, not to that's... be confused with Young Neil in uh, Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> <Like a> Scott Pilgrim. 
proud of today. Uh, yeah. All right, Zach. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with Amy Sedaris as Mrs. Hainish because normally I'm a big fan of Amy Sedaris, but I don't even remember her in this movie. So it neither do I. I saw that too. Of her performance, Mrs. Hainish. Right. I don't see Hainish anywhere else in in the cast list. I feel like not their the kids' last names. Oh, is she one of the parents? Um, yeah, that's what I was saying. Maybe she's the one who runs into the room and is like, when when looking for the kids in the classroom, and then they're all gone. Is that possible? Remember, and then she goes and tells Principal Mullins that they're all gone. Is that Amy Sedaris? I I didn't recognize her. Oh. The, the the sub? No, she's like she's not a sub, but like when when they all when the kids all go to battle the bands, right as they're escaping, there's a lady yeah. who runs into the empty classroom and is like, oh no, they're all gone. I think yeah, that's I, I think that's supposed to be like like Dewey's replacement sub. No. Well that wasn't my sense, but I think that's that's Amy Sedaris. Okay. That's who I'm gonna say it was. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Okay. Todd. I have Jacqueline Needenthal as Emily, who is a little girl that's getting berated by uh by Principal oh. Mullins. And she's like, I'll be good, I swear. You want a hug? Yeah, and it was her only movie credit, and I could see why. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Oh man. Okay. Can All we right. do a special category? Who's the best kid actor in this movie? I mean, oh, we've man. said we, we've kind of excluded the kids from these categories. <laughs> Which of these kids gives the best performance? Well, I mean, the one that is still like is is a big thing now is Miranda Cosgrove. Like she she's one that actually went on and like did a Disney show after this and actually has made a career. I would not pick her. In fact, I feel like she gives one of the more mediocre performances because she comes across too much as a movie kid. I don't get a lot of naturalism from her. She seems too much like a little movie actress kid. I could see that. I could see that. I think my choice is uh, Robert Sy as Lawrence <laughs> because he is amazing at underplaying everything and having just that low-key delivery that makes him really awesome. And then when he, he dons that costume at the end of the movie with the crazy, like, you know, Tommy Pickles' mom's hair wig, like, he's... And then the cape, he's amazing. The Tommy Pickles' mom's hair wig. Yeah, like the three... Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I just love that that's how you describe it. I love it. that that was his costume. I wonder if he came up with that <laughs> on his own. <laughs> Uh, do either of you guys have a kid who stands out well okay looking at the IMDb picture Maryam Hassan plays Tamika she is a total smoke show now by the way like if you look at her picture she's really good in the movie though yes yeah wasn't she she's the one that was one of the daughters in the are we there yet movies right not according to IMDb oh no 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 which one was that Oh, that's Tamika. So that was, uh, yeah, not her. The other backup singer. Um, uh, oh, Alicia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
Alicia Allen. Brace face. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she was she was the daughter in the Are We There Yet movies. Apparently she was in Young Adult, too. It looks like Amy Sedaris was cut from the movie. She oh, had a okay. scene where she's a counselor, it looks like. Then obviously she she uh was uh, had to be horrible then. Um said <laughs> so cut for pacing. But yeah. Uh, honestly, I think my favorite might be Freddie, might be Kevin Alexander Clark. He's he's so good in this. Like he like when he's like the one kid that when you're watching it and you hear him talking, it's like I I knew that kid. Like he, there was one of those in every class. You knew that kid. And uh, he always played yeah. percussion. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. he couldn't pay anything else. Shut up. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's a, that's what I'm going with. Okay. Uh, Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller Award. Todd. Well, Terry just quoted my favorite minor character. That's Frankie, the very Italian. And I, I, I was like, he looks like he should be on The uh, the Sopranos. I looked it up. He actually was on 18 episodes of The Sopranos. <laughs> like, so he already <laughs> looks like a grown Italian man. But uh, yeah, he gives Freddie shit like the whole movie, and uh, and he he has the the line you like, Miss Mullins, you're the man. <laughs> that, that that guy's awesome. His facial expressions are are just brilliant. <laughs> he he looks like yeah, you're right. He looks like not just any adult. He looks like a specific one, and I don't know who it is, but he looks like a like, like a like star or something kind of. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know, but yeah, he's just got a look to him that yeah. Uh, let's see here. He was going to be one of mine, too. I don't um, remember him on The Sopranos. Do you remember him, Zach? Who did he play on The Sopranos? It's like uh, Bobby Jr. Oh, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see it. Um, my favorite minor character is, uh, is the gym teacher, because for the longest time, I thought it was, um, it was Kyle Gass, the other half of uh, Tenacious D. Because he kind of looks like him. And yeah, then I had I to look it up, and he wasn't. But also, just for the line when when uh, when Dewey gives that line of uh, "those who can't do teach, and those who can't teach teach Jim," and he's yeah. just sitting there nodding his his head. He's like, "Yeah, you're not wrong." <laughs> yeah. he's, he's wearing like a sweatshirt, and everybody else is all like dressed to the nines, and he's he's like the only one in the whole building. <laughs> he's also the one that kind of calls out Dewey on listing the song lyric. We, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that, is a, that song? a song? No, I don't. I don't think so. It's a song. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it definitely was not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach. How about you? Oh, I can't believe you. Well, we've already talked about it a little bit, but Lucas Babin is Spider. I mean, that's I. I, we, I think maybe we we ought to think about renaming it Big Tim, Amazing Larry, High Roller. Spider Award, or we could because... name the Stick Man Award Spider. Well, I mean, he does have. Some... He has a sex tattoo of just above his waist. <laughs> Spider's outfit also, I think, deserves some deep diving. Like, I've never seen an outfit quite like that. I don't know how he puts it on. Um, it's like it's like assless chaps for your torso. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's, a it's, great an, way to put it. it's an amazing <laughs> outfit that I can't think of many actors that would don it, except for maybe Nicolas Cage. Um, but uh, there we Luke, go. Nicolas Cage is Spider. Spider, yeah. This movie <laughs> needed more of Spider in the early '90s. I could see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so should we just do it? It's the Spider Stick Man. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. That's one we hadn't named yet, and uh, yeah. Well, I say, I'm saying he's the uh, the Big Tim Amazing Larry Award winner. I think there are other stick men in this movie, too. But Oh, he was my pick for stick man, though. Yeah, me too. He, he could I'm, be both. I mean, just backstage of a rock show, just standing there talking to to Mullins and say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, you're so hot. What, what, what? Oh, what? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but she's like, uh, "What did you say?" I mean, she's—I don't know if she—I mean, she's probably playing coy, but I don't know if she's totally like into him. I mean, is it? I think it, it might be unrequited a little bit, which I think stunts his stickman game a little bit. My pick for stickman was Ned. I mean, Ned, Ned is clearly getting it in. How, yeah. How, how did how did he land that? I agree. I mean, how did, form, how did a former member of Maggot Death turn substitute teacher temp and then temp, yeah. Yeah, land, land the assistant to the she mayor the of city. the city. I don't know how he affords that apartment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when if yeah, especially since Dewey never pays rent. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. But then that's again, maybe point. it wasn't expensive if he only owed him twenty two hundred dollars over <laughs> the course of probably several months of rent. Maybe it isn't that expensive somehow. It depends on right. it depends on where it is, which is something we need to talk about. We can talk about this now if we want, but where does this movie take place? It's in New York, obviously, somewhere. Now, up until watching this movie, I'd always assumed it took place in Boston. I'm not I'm not really sure why, but looking at the kind of blurred out license plates, it looked like New Jersey license plates. Ah. Uh. But I don't know where in New Jersey it's definitely. Can we all agree? It's like in the Northeast somewhere. I think that's yeah, fair. I mean, th- that's the only way you're gonna like Horace Green looks like a building you would see in a <coughs> in a New England city. Yeah, maybe that's why I thought it was Boston because Horace Green sounds like a Revolutionary War hero. Yeah, sounds like he was riding a horse or something. It was shot in Long Island. Hmm. Well, maybe if it's in New Jersey, then rent wasn't that expensive. Maybe. It looks it's like, like New Jersey, like more. the most densely populated state in the nation. That's true. I don't know. I thought I always <laughs> thought this movie took place in Boston. I'm not sure. Like when they go to that bar, that bar, not the like when when Dewey takes Principal Mullins to that that dive or whatever. Like that mm-hmm. looks like. It's in like a pirate bar or something. Are you sure there's no coffee? <laughs> I am quite certain. That, yeah, yeah. that waiter should win one of our awards. Like, he was pretty fascinating. <laughs> he has a backstory. The only options were cup of coffee or giant freaking Stein. <laughs> uh, all right, Todd, did you have any, any other uh, stick man you wanted to mention? No, I only wrote down Spider. I did too. Okay, Billy Bat's douchebag. Um, I I I wrote down just one name, and that is Patty. I mean, she's about as douchey as you get here. Um, 
It, it, it all falls apart because of her in more ways than one. The movie doesn't happen unless she's a douchebag. And uh, it doesn't, the, the ruse isn't up unless she's a douchebag. So it, it, it yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, she's the douche of the movie. She called the cops. She, she called the cops, man. She was a top five she Karen. She got it out of me. When we did our top five Karen list. Yeah, because oh, that yeah. was your only criteria was they had to call the cops on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all she's, right. Not, she's not my biggest douche in this movie, though. All right. What about what, what do you have then, Zach? I went with Zach's dad. Damn it. Zach's <laughs> dad, Mr. Mooneyham. Yeah, he, he, he says that, you know, he doesn't want his son to play electric guitar <laughs> and he bullies him and he's just a total jackass and you know he's the one that's like pressuring principal mullins and he's the one that's in the most disbelief about this you expect us to believe that crap um he's just uh sort of a jerk who also reminds me of my advisor in grad school so i also have some like uh, subliminal unconscious associations with it but uh yeah not kind of a kind of a big douchebag i also think dewey is obviously a douchebag well yeah in his own yeah but endearing he's an endearing douchebag like he's one of those douchebags where you're like, oh, come on, dude. I mean, you're awesome, but <laughs> stop being stupid and you'll be even more awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. What is the best scene of this movie, Todd? I think it is uh, Dewey's lecture of the man. Because that's like when he first wakes up and he is dewey doing his thing like he he he's like you want you want to learn something you want to learn something all right just give up (laughs) (laughs) he explodes in that scene it's like okay and and he is on that level the rest of the movie and that that whole thing and and then he turns it off and he's like we will uh conclude our lecture on the man when we return (laughs) good music class (laughs) that's a great scene it is a good scene it is a good scene uh, the scene I wrote down is uh, is the scene where they write "Step Off." Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's it's just a great scene, and I I remember actually showing this scene in a in a college psychology class as you're talking about um, like levels of of like like child development, and you get to a point where you're you're um, you start to question why you do certain things, and and start to question like question authority question just asking those questions why and he's like teaching them to ask those questions why and to to rebel and to to think for yourself instead of just doing what people tell you to do and and uh and so i i I was like oh yeah i remember showing that 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 and then and it's it's him really connecting with them and pulling them out of their shell and letting them know it's okay this is what people do. People question why they do the things that they do and why they are the way they are. And uh, yeah, step off. <laughs> well, I Zach, guess. how about you? Uh, either, you really could not pick a wrong best scene in this movie, but uh, I have two. I can't really pick between them. Uh, I would say the legend of the rent, which is all just <laughs> one tracking shot camera gradually moving backwards. 
and you think Johnny Depp deserved an Oscar over this? Like, come on, no, that is amazing acting. And then I also was struck this time by the pick up the pieces montage when they're all just like rehearsing and Billy's cutting out the outfit and the backup singers are dancing and you got Zach strumming. Like, that is a great montage for this movie. And it was, it, it just, you know, it brings a smile to my face every time I watch it. But that's, you can't go wrong. And then, of course, of course, the actual performance in itself, which I think is a pretty riveting um, sequence, maybe the, one of the great musical performances in movie history. Like, that is absolutely amazing to watch. All, goosebumps, I think. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. But My yeah, other favorite yeah. scene is when he first puts the band together and he gets, like, every little bit. And you could see him, like, doing the... You know, he, he's actually, yeah, like you were saying earlier, he was, he's directing at that point. He's just like, okay, that's perfect. You are perfect. And then he's like, goes the next one. Hello. It's pretty clear he doesn't know what a cello is. <laughs> What's the big thing you were playing? Well, he might have actually thought it was a bass because, <laughs> I mean, it's like a bigger cello, right? Give like a little. Yeah. Doo -doo 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 -doo. No, that's too George of the Jungle. Do it on. Do it on the simple. Really, 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 really light. Really light. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the Legend of the Rent. That's a. That's a great call too. That I love that scene. And and just just <laughs> the ridiculous gaff at the end too. He's just like, thank you, thank you. The, the ridiculousness of that song too is just. It felt like something he was making up in the moment, which he kind of did. Just letting you know, I wrote this in 15 minutes. <laughs> it's not quite done. When he's all like already got the theater of it too, he's just like he's like road crew. We need we need some dry ice. Right here. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Chimes, Freddy. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's just ew, it's so good, so good. All right. Um, in uh, if there were a sequel. If there were a sequel to School of Rock, what would it be? Matt get death. <laughs> get death. <laughs> I think the no no vacancy cross country <clears throat> tour, stopping in Topeka, Kansas, with real Topeka people, and ending up in New York City with a young critic from Rolling Stone magazine. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. I also think is Zach Mooneyham is a he's like a, a rock addict now. He's gonna start mm -hmm. his own band. I want to know what what he's doing in like ten years. Oh yeah, maybe he became William Miller. But who most likely to become William Miller in this in in the class? Summer, <laughs> probably <laughs> the genius kid who uh, ends that. up being a rock journalist. I I, I could see it. Lawrence. I would got. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. I like it. I would go with uh, uh, Katie. I mean, she's you know spouting off pretentious <laughs> um, music takes. You know, Sheila E's great female drummer, and you know she's already like already well versed in the, the history of rock. Which one's Katie? She the bassist. The bassist, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can see that. Now, I I, uh, I was thinking for for the sequel, um, think thinking about like our inspiration for doing this. It, it, 
the only thing that popped into my head is like you could easily I could easily see the opening scene to the sequel of School of Rock be like the opening scene to remember the Titans where it's like the reunion where they all come back together for the funeral and then put together uh, like Freddy's funeral because he passed away and and then and then they come back together and and do a performance uh in in tribute to him where Jack Black might have to sing tribute I yeah. just thought of that part but <laughs> That's my favorite to me. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think they need to do something because it seems like that cast was really uniquely tight knit. Mm -hmm. And Jack Black. So I watched a lot of the behind the scenes features on the on the 2003 DVD that I own. Jack Black is like so himself in this movie and he has great rapport with all these kids. Like he's just a genuinely great guy. Um, He's like a top five person that I would be shocked if he ever got canceled. I mean, he seems like a genuinely great human being, but like there's one part of the movie where he's talking with Miranda Cosgrove and they actually do like the patty cake thing <coughs> that he does with, with Robert Sy. I think he had like all different handshakes with the cast and he's just like so funny and genuine. So I feel like it, it would be a disservice in some ways to not have some sort of reunion in the next year to, I don't know, as, as a result of, of, of Kevin, Kevin's death. But like, we, we need to see these, these people grown up. Like this, this is too iconic, too memorable of a movie. And uh, Jack Black is too wonderful and beloved and treasured to, to not have something. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Anything, any flaws, anything outdated, any conspiracy theories? <clears throat> um, I Okay, go for it. No, go ahead, Todd. All right, well, I have two things written down. One of them is, I don't know how they're supposed to soundproof that room, but there is a room right next to it, and if they're creating musical fusion all day, there's no way that nobody heard them except for that one time. <laughs> uh, and then, okay, so the main, the only problem in the movie is the whole, like, convention, the teacher's convention thing, because the cops show up, and then all of a sudden Dewey's just, like, darting out of there with two guitars. Like, how did he get past the cops, and all the teachers are chasing him? And okay, and plus the the problem is that was at night, and then all the kids are wearing like normal clothes. But the very next scene is an extension of that scene because the parents are still arguing with Miss Mullins, but it's the morning and the kids are in their uniforms, and Dewey's passed out when they go to pick him up. Like all of that is jumbled into one scene, kind of, and like they change the day. Like it's a different day. If, like the Battle of the Bands was not that night. It should be like a 10 p.m. thing, but. It obviously took place at like 11 in the morning or something. But why is that? Why do they make it seem like that scene is extended when it's obviously another day? It's not like the parents are there all night, right? I had that exact flaw written down. <clears throat> I, I had questions about that too. I mean, may, maybe there is an, an extended ellipsis over the course of this movie where they travel from the school to the, the venue. And maybe that takes three hours for some reason or six hours or nine hours. But uh, for the parents, it only took them five minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that 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 is an interesting point. However, I could easily see something like that where you have like the parent night the, that night, and then everyone just comes in the next morning to complain about it. I mean, that's knowing how schools work. That's how that would have happened. Especially private schools, right, Terry? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's how it, it wouldn't have been because the principal would not have been available for complaints during a parent night. So they would have come back the next day and but the cops uh, so were there. I will <laughs> kind of shuts everything. True. Down. True. 
No, so the flaw I thought of was um was that they never and maybe it was missing in there or something, but um oh what was his name? Who was the one with all with the light show and everything? Gordon. So yeah. Gordon and and the other two guys were the roadies, and the other two guys just turned into security, like without ever being taken off the roadie crew. I and so okay. I was like, when when did that happen? They they never actually said when this happened. It just happened. So that that was the one thing I thought of. But we're just nitpicking now. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's stuff that like this wouldn't this would have come out if it had been a. If, if like probably a deleted scene or something, or this or security is an extension of being a roadie or I don't know. Um, okay, so mine were that I, there were some unmistakable parallels between Battle of the Bands and the end of the 2016 Academy Awards. Nice. <laughs> um, also, uh, you know, Terry said there was a real Michael Scott and Toby dynamic. Why not just say there is a Barry and Dick dynamic to the Dewey-Ned relationship? And why not say that uh, Patty is actually Anna Moss? Anna Moss, after she's dated Dick for a while, and somehow Dick and Barry are living together. Like, this movie is an extension of the High Fidelity universe, for sure. Well, absolutely. I, I, we sa- I said that in High Fidelity, is, is that Barry is Dewey. Yeah. <clears throat> but you're right, you're right. Ned and, uh, and Dick are the same person, too. Um, this isn't a flaw at all. Actually, it's just a praise of the movie. I don't even know why it's in the section, but I just wanted to mention it. I love how all the parents in this movie drive Volvos. Jesus, that's a perfect detail. Like, <laughs> I feel like every rich preppy kid has parents who drive Volvos. That is, I mean, that's inspired. Right? That is Rick's genius right there. Um, I think they sound freaking amu- amazing in their music class. Like, I've heard, you know, high schoolers play music. I can't imagine listening to elementary school kids, but like, they play that classical music. Oh my freaking god! Like, they are amazing, and, and they're like and fourth Barry, graders. Yeah, Barry says. Uh, uh, Barry, uh, Dewey says the same thing, but uh, I don't know how realistic that is, but geez, they sound really good in music class. Um, I also read in one of those like clickbait articles that I couldn't help but click that Frankie and Marta are now dating in real life. I don't know if that's true, but it was an interesting clickbait. <laughs> and, then, and, and then the final thing I wanted to add, oh, by the way, uh, not, again, just random fact, Fran Drescher was at the premiere of this movie. If you watch the uh, uh, some of the special features, she like give, she's at the premiere of the movie and all the kids are excited to see her. But the last thing I was going to say is, have you guys been um, aware of the, the musical fad of this summer, which is the Linda Lindas? Did you watch them on Jimmy Kimmel this week? Do you know no. what I'm talking about at all? No. Okay, so they're this all-girl band, and they're like 12 or 13 years old. And I, part of the reason why this this pod, you know, this episode works so well is like the Linda Lindas, man. They're taking over. So they did this song in the LA in the LA library called "Racist Sexist Boy," and their names are like. Oh, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, their names are Eloise, Lucia, Malia, and Bella. They're like the School of Rock in like 2021 but they're much more inclusive and they're calling out toxic patriarchal culture, which is really cool. But uh, yeah, I can't help but think of the parallels between the school of rock and the Linda Linda's today. So I don't know. That wasn't a conspiracy theory. I just want to throw it out there. There's no conspiracies or flaws in this movie. It's just, it's just perfection. 
except that Frankie and Marta are dating in real life. Also, right. there's sorry, one more thing. There's a yeah, special yeah. feature on the DVD where, uh, and it's on the IMDb trivia page where um, uh, uh, Jack Black made a plea to Led Zeppelin to use the song, the immigrant song, um, the Led Zeppelin song. And so he used all the extras that were in the battle of the band sequence to make a plea to Led Zeppelin to give them that song, which is kind of interesting because you don't necessarily think of that song as the most important song in the movie because it's in the scene where he's driving the van back. But like, eh, it's kind of cool. It kind of reminds oh, me yeah. of how like uh, Quentin Tarantino said he was never going to do that scene in Pulp Fiction without using the song Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, the, the, the Uma mm-hmm. Thurman, John Travolta scene. Like directors or actors must have a very specific like, you know, agenda. They know exactly what song they're going to do or else they're not going to do it. So like, I don't know, they were going all out for Led Zeppelin in that scene. Well, and I could see, I could see Linkletter and, and Tarantino, guys that are so music centric in some of what they do yeah definitely definitely have i mean like how how long do you think link letter was was dreaming about starting his uh his movie about being a high schooler in the 70s with sweet emotion i mm. mean it <laughs> it i i think you could throw cameron crow into that mix too that you just those music centric guys they they think this is the music that's going to make the scene happen i think scorsese's probably in that category too um yeah uh, that's a good point that's a good point all right lvp mvp and then we'll wrap this thing up todd why don't you go first uh well i wrote down for lvp the golden globes because they nominated big fish bennett like beckham and love actually over school Jesus rock christ oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> uh my mvp is 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 freddie because he actually looks like he kicks ass on the drums. Like, other than mm-hmm. Dewey, he's the one guy who looks like he belongs in a band. And yep. he starts the movie off pissed off. Mm-hmm. And he turns that into just murder on the drums. And I remember the first time we watched it, we're like, we looked at uh, the guy that was the drummer for our high school band. We're like, dude, he's better than you. And he's four. He's like 10. <laughs> <laughs> he, and he looks the part. I mean, Fre- Freddie is, yeah, he's the MVP of the movie. Uh, nice. All right. Uh, my, my LVP, I mean, it, it's, it's gotta be Patty. Uh, in, in some ways she's the MVP cause she's the only thing that kept the plot moving, but, um, but she's, she's just the worst. Uh, my MVP, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, my MVP is the, uh, concert promoter for battle of the bands uh, who was able to fill a concert venue in the middle of a weekday to give away $20,000 for a battle of bands contest. So, I mean, how, how, yeah, that dude's a genius, whoever he is. Well, and the ticket taker guy who got all the parents to actually buy tickets. I know, I know. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah. You're breaking my heart. The ticket counter's over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, parents, parents of prep school kids are going to be the rule followers and go buy tickets. <laughs> Zach. All right. Well, my LVP is Miss Dunham because not only did she break her leg, but she didn't obviously didn't leave very detailed sub plans. And she was already operating a classroom that was pretty toxic with the whole stars chart and demerits. And uh, it just didn't seem like a pretty, didn't seem like a great environment for learning. And um, I don't know, MVP. I mean, you could really go with anybody. I'm just going to say 
um, no vacancy because they won, you know, they won the battle of the bands. Why not win this podcast? No vacancy. And, and shout out to Mike White. Like we haven't talked about him at all, but he's the writer and actor in the movie. Like he is awesome. And this is not like any other movie he ever did. Yeah, yeah this is not like too. Chuck and Buck at all. Right. Very far removed. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, great call on that. Okay, let's wrap this up. Quote of the day: Strawberries, not the cheese. Womack with a little sex in it. Quote of the day: Todd, what do you got? Uh, so it's it's from School of Rock and. It's just a um, a little thing that I like when he uh, she's like uh, Tamika's like why don't you go on a diet and then Dewey says because I like to eat is that such a crime? <laughs> I think we can all relate. We can all relate to that absolutely. All right, uh, I'll go next. My my quote of the day comes from uh, Son of the Bride, which I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. As my anniversary watch, uh, this was a quote from Juan Carlos, his long lost childhood friend. Uh, someone asks at one point he, he shows up and he, he's got a mustache and uh, and Raphael's daughter asks him, why do you have a mustache? And he's and he said, uh, because my nose was in desperate need of being underlined. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great nice. line. And the delivery was just perfect, too. It was great. It was great. All right, Zach. Uh, my favorite quote comes from uh, School of Rock, and it's when um, Dewey has invited Principal Mullins to uh, to eat or drink, and uh, he basically reveals his agenda, which is that he loved to take the kids to a concert, and Principal Mullins says, a concert? And then Dewey says, yeah, there's one at the end of the month that would be perfect, the Philharmonic. They do the classics. They do Beethoven, Mozart, Enya. Enya. Stuff <laughs> <laughs> <Not> like that. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, all the classics. All the classics. All right. Well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we will be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. I think Todd needs a no frequency, no, no vacancy shirt. <laughs> I, w- I would get one if, if that was a thing. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.